Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Study of the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 2 tonight as we begin the uh, first of seven letters to the seven churches um, in Revelation. And we're going to be looking at... uh, Christ's letter to the church in Ephesus. Um, I still hear this song on Christian radio. Uh, I know it's not it's not super current, but it's not that old either. They still play it, uh, like on K Love and some of those song uh, some of those radio stations. It's called "More Like Falling in Love" by Jason Gray. Um, it's one of those testimonial songs where somebody grew up with religion and then they found a relationship with Christ. And this, uh, the lyrics of this song kind of describes the difference. Uh, here's what the lyrics of the song say. Give me rules, I will break them. Show me lines, I will cross them. I need more than a truth to believe. I need a truth that lives, moves, and breathes to sweep me off my feet. The chorus says it's got to be more like falling in love than something to believe in. More like losing my heart than giving my allegiance. Caught up, called out, come take a look at me now. It's like I'm falling, it's like I'm falling in love. Um, It's describing the fact that when you get saved, you have a love for God, amen, and a love for people that you didn't have before. It's more than just head knowledge. It's something that radically changes your life from the heart, uh, from the heart, and so that's what we're talking about tonight: the difference between rules and relationship. Uh, you could grow up in church all your life and uh, know how to behave, when to stand up, when to sit down, how to talk, how to pray, what the expectations are, and, and kind of you know keep everything in between the lines and don't go too far this way or that way. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you miss, you miss what it's all about. And what I want you to think about for just a minute is the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. Okay, The Pharisees, they were so zealous when it came to the law that they began to really go to great lengths to explain the law. And then over time, their explanations of the law became equal to the law. Does that make sense? And as a result, they got caught up in, you know, the religion and the rules. And then when Jesus came and he started ministering to people, they said, oh, you're hanging out with sinners. Oh, you didn't wash your hands. Oh, you're breaking the Sabbath because you did a, a good deed on the wrong day. You see? So there's a difference between the Pharisees, and Jesus. And I want you to think about that as we kind of enter into the Scriptures tonight. Herschel Hobbes gives us a a good quote that kind of gives you an idea of what Ephesus, the city, was like. Ephesus was located on the Caister River near the seacoast. It was the principal city of Asia. Now, when we say Asia, we're not talking about the continent Asia. We're talking about the province of Asia. It's in the area of modern-day Turkey. It was a melting pot between the east and the west. Here was located the temple to the goddess Artemis. 
The city figured prominently in Paul's ministry. He spent three years there, according to Acts 18 and 20. And as one hears the name Ephesus, you think of other people that Paul knew that were there, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos and Timothy. Uh, it was the city in which John, who wrote this you know, uh, book called Revelation, the Apostle John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, one of the sons of thunder, one of the sons of Zebedee, a brother named James, uh, that John. It was in this city that John lived and labored for about 25 years. So he knew him well. Uh, at the time of the writing of Revelation, the church there was between 40 and 45 years old. So that's a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Now, here's the cool thing. We perhaps know as much or as more about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament, okay? Uh, here's why. We've got the book of Acts that tells us when Paul went to Ephesus and people got saved there, so a church was born, a church was planted. And uh, then we have Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is the church at Ephesus. And then we have Paul's first letter to Timothy, and he sent Timothy to Ephesus. And then we've got this short letter from Jesus in the book of Revelation to the church at Ephesus. And when you put all that together, here's what we know about Ephesus from the New Testament. Just kind of jog your memory. Um, just to give you some uh, facts here, in Acts 19, the first seven verses, Paul shared the gospel with about 12 men in Ephesus. Okay, He asked them, uh, had, did they have the Holy Spirit? And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, well, do you, did you not get the Holy Spirit when you were saved? No, we just have John's baptism. And he says, well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, but you need to be saved and receive the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's reflected when he wrote his letter, you know, Ephesians, in the very first chapter, verse 13, 14, he says, having received the Holy Spirit when you believed, okay? And so he shared the gospel with about 12 men in Ephesus in Acts 19, verse 7 verses. And then... He spoke boldly in the synagogue there for three months in Acts 19, verse 8. And then uh, after that, he left, and he could, well, he left the synagogue, that is, and he conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrrhenius for two years. Now, this is interesting as I studied that. Uh, if you look at um, different Bible translations, I know the CSB has like a, he conducted discussions, and I'm thinking, well, that's a good contemporary, contemporary way to say it, but no, 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 let me, let me do a little bit of digging there. And so we began to study, and uh, it comes from uh, a Greek word that we get our word dialogue from. And uh, it means to discuss, to address, to uh, preach, to lecture, to argue, to reason. It almost is kind of like... Uh, a debate, if you will. It's getting a conclusion across, and uh, it's, it's reasoning, it's, it's dialogue, it's give and take until you arrive at a decision or a conclusion. And so when you think of it that way, uh, think of it this way. Paul was in the lecture hall of Tyrrhenius for two years, and he began to reason with them from the Scriptures, having discussions and dialogue and even debate, if you will. But what he really was doing was answering their questions and he was defending the faith, and he was teaching and equipping those believers, guess what, to do the same. Now, that's pretty exciting if you ask me. 
And uh, that's what happened there. And so, when you look at the rest of the Bible background on Ephesus, the result, according to Acts uh, 19, is that all all the residents of Asia, again, I'm not talking about the continent Asia, I'm talking about the province of Asia, which is modern day Turkey, uh, where Ephesus was, that region of the world, both Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord. In other words, they were a lighthouse in their area of the world. They were an evangelistic powerhouse. Why? Because people came to know Christ when they heard the gospel and they received the Holy Spirit. They were empowered to be a witness. They began to meet regularly, asking questions about Christ and Scripture and the faith, and they were learning the answers, and they were learning how to defend the faith and share that faith with others. That's what I want you to understand about Ephesus. So great, so powerful was that, that in Acts 19, verses 18 through 20, here's what the Acts account says. It says, And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. You see, there was a lot of idolatry in Ephesus. There was even mysticism, sorcery, and magic in Ephesus. And when these people got saved, you know what they said? We can't do that anymore. And so many of them got saved, so many of them gave that up that they collected all of that old magic sorcery stuff and they burned it publicly in front of everyone saying, we're not going back. We're not living that way anymore. We know Jesus now. He's Lord. Christ is Lord. And in that way, the word of the Lord went out and their testimony became clear and they took a strong stand for Jesus. Now here's the turning point. The turning point is when, it, when the gospel kept going out and it began to affect all sectors of society, uh, particularly the business world. Eventually, there was somebody, I forgot who said it, but somebody said that Paul the Apostle, wherever he went, there was either a riot or a revival or both. <laughs> and you know what? There was both in Ephesus. I mean, he went there and shared the gospel and planted a church and people were saved and he was, God was working through him in mighty ways. As a matter of fact, there's a story in Acts 19 that's not in my lesson, but I want to tell you because it's kind of like the bridge uh, to all of this. But uh, at one point it was saying that, you know, uh, God was doing so many mighty things through Paul that uh, he was casting out demons and everything else. And so these sons of Sceva, they thought, well, hey, let's do this too. And so they tried to cast out a demon from somebody using the name of Jesus, and it didn't work. The demon said, you know, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And and then it clobbered them. And then, of course, as a result of that, uh, people began to hold up the name of Jesus in high honor. That means something when you're dealing with a culture that's steeped in idolatry, in paganism, in sorcery, in magic, okay? And so God's at work. Uh, the gospel is going out, people's lives are being changed, and then when people that don't quite take it seriously name the name of Christ in a, um, in a way that's not honoring to Him, they get clobbered and they realize, oh, there's something to this. And so as a result, uh, there's a re- revival breaking out in this community, and then eventually that r- revival becomes a riot. You might say, now what do you mean? Well, here, here's what happened. 
a riot developed in the community because the spread of the gospel threatened the businesses that were connected to idol worship, okay? Uh, these people worship idols. And in order to worship idols, you got to make idols. And though, so, you know, we're going back many years ago, right? The silversmiths and those that work with their hands, they fashioned these things. And that was their biggest client, their biggest producer, you know? And so all of a sudden, this revival was hitting them in the pocketbook. We can't have that. And so in Acts 19, verse 26, look at what happens. In Acts 19, 26, you see in here, uh, th there's a guy talking, and he says, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one of all of Asia and the world, uh, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. And so here's a guy leading a riot, and that's his, that's his charge to him. And it gets the crowd all stirred up. You mean we're, gonna, we're not, we're not going to, you know, we're going to lose our job? We're not going to make money? Because this preacher came to town and, and stirred up uh, things, and we've got this revival that's now hitting us in the pocketbook, and we're going to lose our business. Well, we can't have that. And so a riot develops, and the disciples want to protect Paul. Ultimately, Paul leaves town. He goes down the road, he continues to preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches. He keeps doing what God has called him to do. And so we jump from Acts 19 to Acts 20. In, in Acts 20, Paul finally catches up with elders, spiritual leaders, from the church in Ephesus. Uh, in Acts 20, 17, it says, Now from Miletus, that's another community, Paul sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. And to sort of summarize the, the gist of it, uh, I jump to verse 25, and here's what he says. Okay, it's a farewell speech. Paul says to the elders from Ephesus, And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he's, which he's purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Okay, do you hear that? He's saying goodbye to them. He says, I've done everything that God told me to do. And he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. Now, I'm kind of giving you the backstory before we actually get to the story, so that you can go, oh, so that's what it's all about. And that's what we're doing here. By the time you look at the book of Ephesians, or the letter of Ephesians in the New Testament, I just want to read a quick snippet at the beginning of that letter and the very end of that letter to give you an idea of what it was about. But in Ephesians 1.13, Paul says this to the same group of people, okay? The, the people that he said goodbye to for the last time. He says, in him, referring to Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. 
Now, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. And this is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. So Paul's saying, you know, I keep thanking God for you when I remember you in your prayers because I remember your faith in the Lord, your love for the saints. And it's all because when you heard the gospel, the word of truth, the, the good news of salvation, you were saved. You received the Holy Spirit, and He changed your life. It made a difference in your life. And as a result, there in Ephesians chapter 6, the very end of the letter, here's what he closes with. He says, Tychicus, our dearly beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I am sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this last verse. Grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. His last words were to have an undying love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's important because when we read Revelation 2 here in a few minutes, you're going to see that Jesus had one, one thing to rebuke the church over. They had forsaken their first love. Now you know where I'm going. So here's the thing that I want you to see is that Paul, even though John spent 25 years of his life there, history tells us that, Paul was the one that took the gospel there. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And in his missionary journeys, he ended up in Ephesus. And he shared the gospel with about 12 men. And all of a sudden a church was planted, and more and more people began to get saved, and more and more people had questions, and they got their questions answered, and they began to learn how to share their faith and defend the faith, and they became a lighthouse in their community and even in their province and beyond, okay? I mean, there was a revival that broke out, people came forward publicly and said, you know, I used to be involved in sorcery and magic and stuff like that, no more, and they burned their stuff publicly. I'm done with it, okay? And then a riot breaks out in the community because some people feel threatened, okay? They feel threatened by this movement of Jesus followers. And now Paul is writing to them, and he's keeping in touch with them through Tychicus, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing news about me and I want to stay informed about you, you know, how you're doing. And, you know, I remember your faith in the Lord and your love for the saints. And I pray that you will have an undying love for the Lord Jesus. And when he said goodbye to the leaders, he says, I know that there are going to be wolves that come in. And there might even be people among you that rise up and draw people after themselves. And so by the time we get to one of the last things written about Ephesus prior to Revelation 2, it would be 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes a letter to Timothy, and in 1 Timothy 1.3, look at what it says. Paul is writing to Timothy, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. So even now, after getting a report from Tychicus, here is um, Paul. He's hearing things, and he sends Timothy to Ephesus and he says you need to stay there because there's false teachers and you need to stop them from spreading you know you know deception and and lies and untruth all that 
they took to heart. And so due to idolatry and sorcery in the city, the church sought to be a pure church, sound in doctrine, a buttress of God's truth, a pillar of God's truth. Now we get to Revelation 2. Now you know the story. Revelation 2, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here we have a personal message from the Lord Jesus Christ. In each of these seven letters to the seven churches, there's a pattern. Um, I'll explain the pattern each week as we go through it. Uh, rather than just say it one time. But here it tells, you know, write these things to the angel or messenger of the church, and then it's from Jesus, and he refers to, remember that vision last week in Revelation 1, the vision of Christ walking among the candlesticks, and the candlesticks represent the seven churches that he's now writing a letter to each one of those seven churches. And in that vision of Christ walking among his churches, it's a very vivid descriptive vision, right, of Jesus. And we talked about that last week. And each time he speaks to one of these seven churches, he refers to a characteristic of Christ in that vision in chapter 1 of Revelation 1. And then he says, I know. And he begins to let them know how acquainted he is with that church and that community. He'll either commend them for what they're doing well, or he will rebuke them for what they're doing wrong. And then he will uh, encourage them or he'll command them to be an overcomer and to he who has ears to hear, listen. We'll look at all of this, but here it is. Uh, a personal message from Christ who is here referred to as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's a picture of Christ walking among his churches he has the messengers or the leaders in his hand. He is fully aware of what's going on, and he is in control. This is a picture of his authority as Lord of the church, as head of the body. And he says, I know, and look at all the things he commends the church in Ephesus for. I know your works. I know your labor. I know your endurance. I know you cannot tolerate evil people. Matter of fact, you know, they took Paul's uh, admonition, you know, beware of those wolves that come, you know, and devour the flock. Beware of 
false teachers. Beware of false doctrine. They took that to heart. They took that seriously. Because he says, I know you cannot tolerate evil people. Uh, It says there in uh, verse 2, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. Now, I don't know how they did that, but apparently they really took time to find out what a person's testimony really was. In other words, to find out if they really did have a testimony. Had they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Did they believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Did they believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? That He's not only the Son of Man, but the Son of God? Did they believe that He died on the cross and was buried in a tomb? That He really did die? And because He really died on the third day, He rose again and He is who He claimed to be. Uh, All of that. But they found out what they believed. They found out whether or not they had a testimony. And they they found out, did that really pass the test of Scripture? And if it didn't, they called them out. Okay, they called them out. And it says here, you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name. Now, just because they were a church full of good works and they labored and they endured and they didn't tolerate evil people, it doesn't mean they were so busy they had it easy. On the contrary, they had to persevere. They had their share of hardships and hard times and trials and, and, and even persecution. I mean, think about the riot in their own community. And we can identify with what's going on in the world today, right? Riots and revivals and all of that. And so they had persevered and they endured hardships for the sake of the name of Christ. And they had not grown weary. In other words, they didn't quit. They didn't give up. They continued to walk with Christ and stand for truth. And you go, well, man, what's wrong with that? I mean, that's a, that's a church I'd love to be a part of. And then Jesus says in verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. As one country preacher said, you don't love me like you used to. And that's true. So... What is that about? Well, I found this quote from Robert Wilkin. I have no idea who he is, but that's who said this. And he said, The oldest and most enduring criticism of Christianity is an appeal to religious pluralism. Now, that statement reminds me of something I saw as a... uh, I would say I was a teenager. I wasn't even a young man. I was a teenager years ago watching on television a talk show the host was phil donahue before oprah before geraldo it was donahue remember him and he had a preacher of that time and era on his panel you may have heard of him he's best known for um guidepost magazine and um the power of positive thinking. He's not, he's, his name is Norman Vincent Peale, whom I got to hear in person one time, believe it or not, but that's another story. And uh, he was on stage, and they had these other people too. And at some point in the show, Donahue says, hey, got a question for you, Mr. Peale. Is there only one way to get to heaven? And you know what he said? It was very disappointing. 
He kind of back, 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 pedaled, back, pedaled. Well, there could be more than one way. That's not what Scripture says, is it? There's only one way, right? There's only one way to heaven. Uh, Acts 4.12 says there's only one name uh, under heaven whereby man can be saved, and that is what? The name of Jesus. There's only one mediator between God and man, and it is Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody can come through the Father except through me, right? And so there's only one way to be saved. That's not me making it up. That's just me saying that's what Scripture says. There's only one way to be saved. And because of that, that's why the gospel, that's one of the reasons why the gospel is offensive to people in the world today. Well, who, who gave you that right? Why do you think that? You know, and they, they want to argue with that. But we're talking about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who was present at creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. Jesus was there at the beginning when God created everything because He's not only Creator, He comes and dies on the cross for the sins of the world and raises uh, back to life on the third day. Not only is He Creator, He is Redeemer, and one of these days He's coming again and He's going to be judged. So yeah, I think He has the right to say there's one way at the name of Jesus. Okay, That's the only way that you can be saved. Well, why am I saying that? We'll go back and look at this again. He says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And uh, I've learned through the years in learning and in teaching that sometimes tension is a good thing. In other words, sometimes when you are trying to figure something out and you just can't quite figure it out, you can't quite wrap your arms or your mind around it, and it just kind of makes you uncomfortable because there's no, there's no easy answer. There's no clear-cut, chop-chop, there it is. And it just kind of leaves you in the lurch, and you're like, man, I don't, I don't like this. It's a little uncomfortable. Well, that's kind of where I was with this message tonight. Because when you read the commentaries, and even when you think about what it's saying in the Scripture, when it says we've forsaken our first love, what does that mean? Well, it can mean two or three things. Let me explain. It could mean that we don't love God the way we used to because John went on to say in his first epistle, we love God because he, what, first loved us. There's your first love. And that, that very well could be. But let me play devil's advocate just for a moment just to make you think a little bit, okay, beyond the, beyond the surface here. Here, John, or Jesus particularly, Jesus is commending the church in Ephesus, and he's saying, look, I look at your works, check, doing great. I'm looking at your labor, check, doing great. I'm looking at the fact that you've endured hardships and you still haven't grown weary, check, check. I've seen that you, you hate uh, and, don't, and don't tolerate evil men. You test them and you say, no, we're not, we're not, we're not doing that here, you know, and then what, whoever the Nicolaitans are, in verse 6, you hate their practices, and God says, I do too. And so from a purity standpoint, they are protecting what they know and they believe to be from God, what they know to be real and true, what's changed their life, and they said, uh-uh, 
this is pure. We're not letting anything dilute this. They are devoted people. And devoted people take an offense when you say, well, I don't think you really care about me. What are you talking about? Do you see what I'm doing here? They're devoted. They're, they're, they, they want pure doctrine. I mean, they take it seriously. How much more serious do you think they can be? So is it really their love for God? We don't know because even in Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, he had a, a word for Israel in that day and time, reminding them of when they first came to know God. It was sort of like their honeymoon. And then as a bride, they turned to idolatry and they committed spiritual adultery on God. And, and, and John, as much as he refers to the Old Testament, he could have used that approach, he could have used that language, but he didn't. Then you could say, well, maybe he's talking about others. Maybe they're just not loving each other. Maybe they're so busy looking around, does he measure up, does she measure up, what about them, what about them? Maybe they kind of got too much friction, and maybe there needs to be more love for others. I think, in my personal opinion, I think it's hard to splice this because of what John taught in his first epistle. John taught, how can you love God whom you don't see when you don't love people that you do see? Okay? And so when it comes to splicing this hair, it's hard to do it in a way that's really satisfactory because when we're talking about love, we're talking about God and people. Even the greatest commandment is what? Love God, and the second one is likened to it, love people. And those two form the greatest commandment, and they go together. Because if you love God, you're going to love people. And if you really love people, it's because you love God. They, they kind of go together, you know, like two-sided coin. So here's what I'm driving at. I believe this congregation in Ephesus was very devoted. I mean, look at all the boxes they check. They were devoted to doctrine. But they were so devoted to doctrine that I think their heart got a little cold. The head was strong and clear. The heart got a little cold. And as a result, I think they began to fossilize and they became a shell of what they should have been. Christ said, now in case you think this is no big deal, he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember how far you have fallen. Repent. Do the things you did at first. That's a clue right there. Do the things you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, when I read that, I go, what did he say? Remember the vision in chapter 1, Christ walking among the lampstands? The lampstands represent the churches. And now he's saying, you don't love me the way you used to, and if you don't remember the way you used to love me, and if you don't repent of the, what you're doing now because you're not loving me the way you used to, I'm going to come and I'm going to take the light out. Wow. That's one of those chin grabbers. That's one of those head turners that gets your attention and says, okay, God, I don't know if I understand it, but I caught that. You got my attention. I'm listening. Okay? And that's what he's saying here. And when he says, you need to go back and do the works you did at first, 
to me, that takes me back to Acts 19 when Paul went to Ephesus and shared the gospel. And all these people began to hear it and believe it and obey it, and they went public. And they burned the things associated with their past. It created a revival in the church and a riot in the community, but guess what? Everybody knew that they believed Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ is Lord, and they took a stand. They weren't trying to condemn people but here's what we do as people of faith you can read uh, Hebrews 11 sometime the heroes of faith and it says in Hebrews 11 that by faith Noah a preacher of righteousness he built the ark that God commanded him to and it condemned the world and you might go well wait a minute how did it condemn the world because when we believe in God and our feet we put our faith into practice then just by our behavior, by our position, by our stand, our actions are louder than our words, and our actions are saying, look, I believe there is a God in heaven, and I'm going to obey Him because I'm going to have to face Him in Judgment Day. I hope you're ready. And so as a result, when the Ephesians came to know Christ, a revival in the church, a riot in the community, but everybody knew there was a light in the house and at some point maybe the pressure got so great in the community businesses started saying listen we can't have this guy get Paul out of here and listen church you better tone it down because this is my job and this is my business and this is my livelihood and at some point the church said well you know Paul said we don't need to have any false teachers and they quit looking outward and they began to look inward. And everything had to be on the up and up. Everybody looked around. Are you for real? Are you sure you believe the right things that we're supposed to believe? And all of a sudden you have this suspicion. It happens quite gradually. And as a result, it's hard to love people the way you should when you're sizing them up. A.T. Robertson said this, Ephesus was a church of orthodox coldness. Orthodox to death. An orthodox church in cold storage. Death on heretics, but mighty cool on the spiritual. It's the church that has been, has had good preachers, and now it's lost its first love and first works, and it's holding on to its first faith by the skin of the teeth. I guess that's one way to say it. Another commentator says, that Christ alludes to the fact when, when Christ says if they don't repent, he'll remove the lampstand from its place. Christ alludes to the fact that the city of Ephesus had to change location because of the gradual silting up of its river, the Caster River. It had been removed from earlier locations, and by analogy, Christ is threatening to do the same to the church unless the church repents. So in a nutshell, here is the church of Ephesus. Christ comes representing authority, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven churches. It, it emphasizes Christ's authority. And he says, your strength is doctrinal purity and you're zealous for good works. But the problem is you've forsaken your first love. And now my word to you is to repent and then let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden until the fall happened. And then a cherubim was set up to guard the tree of life. And then they were banished from the garden forever. And now here's the tree of life again. And it shows up at the end of Revelation in the new heaven and the new earth. And here is Jesus saying that if you hear me and you conquer, you'll have the right to eat from that tree of life, which means you'll live forever and you'll have perfect fellowship with God forever. That's awesome. Let me kind of close this with some practical stuff. How do we recapture our first love? Well, he gives you the remedy here. Number one, remember how far you have fallen. Remember the things you did when you got saved? Now, here's what I didn't say. I didn't say, remember that ooey-gooey, Holy Ghost, uh, goosebump feeling you had when you got saved? <laughs> we all want that feeling again, right? When everything's so fresh and awesome and new. That's not what I said. Remember the things you did when you first got saved. I do. I remember when I first got saved. I had a hunger for God's Word because I didn't know it, but I wanted to, I wanted to learn it. Um, I remember I prayed more than I ever had because I'm like, Lord, I need help. I don't even know where to start, but please help. You know, uh, The prayers were short, but boy, they were genuine. They were heartfelt. Um, I can remember um, praying for people that I would meet through the day, and I'm thinking, wow, I've never prayed for people before, but it was a spontaneous thing. It wasn't a religious thing, check the box, so make myself do this, it was a spontaneous thing. Here I am walking with God through the day and I meet people and I'm like, man, I really need to pray for them. And in my heart and my head, I would pray for them, you know? And it just, it was just natural. It was organic. It just felt awesome. And I can remember God convicting me of some of the things that I used to do. And you've heard me tell the story, but one of the things that God convicted me of is the music that I was listening to. I began to look at the lyrics and I compared it to the Bible and I said, well, this ain't going to work. It's kind of like a tug of war, you know? And so I had my own version of what Ephesus did. I got all of my old music together and I destroyed it and said, I'm not going back there anymore. And so I did all of these things when I, when I became a believer in Christ. And you know what? You don't ever stop doing those things. I mean, once God comes into your life, He changes you and you love Him, and you love Him more, and you serve Him, and you serve Him more. You keep growing in that same direction. So do you remember the things that you did when you got saved? And then, if you're not still doing them, are you willing to repent of that? Now, give me just a few seconds. i got to get on a soapbox, and then I'll get off. Every pastor's got a soapbox. I'm fixing to give you mine, okay? I've never, ever, 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 ever liked the word rededicate, okay? Now, don't take this wrong, and please don't take offense to it. I'm just telling you what I think, okay? I've never liked the word rededicate. I know what it is, and I know how it's practiced in Baptist churches. Somebody realizes I'm not where I should be, but I want to get to where I need to be, I've already been saved, so I don't have to be saved again, so I'm going to come down the aisle, and I'm going to rededicate my life. Now, now hear me. Hear my heart, okay? The word rededicate's not in the Bible, okay? And when we look at the word rededicate, 
it's basically a spiritual way of saying, I'm going to do better. I'm going to get more committed. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be a better Christian. And you know what the problem is? I, 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 I. Okay? Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. It's Christ that lives in me. Okay? I, what I'm trying to say is, I can't do it, but Christ can. So here's what I'm trying to say. When you look at Jesus talking to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, He's talking to churches, people who are saved. He doesn't say, I know some of you aren't where you should be, so you need to rededicate. You don't find that. You know what word He uses? Repent. Repent. And the sad thing is, we think that repent is something that unsaved people do, and we stop doing it the minute we get saved. That's the truth. Repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It's literally an about face. And whenever you look at what God says about sin, it's always repent, period. Doesn't matter what the sin is, and it don't matter who the person is, whether they're a saint or a sinner, whether they're lost or saved. When it comes to sin, you repent. You change your mind and you change your direction. It means if you're going the wrong way, you do a 180 and you get out of there. You stop. That makes sense? And so when it comes to what we're doing wrong, we need to repent. In other words, we realize what we're doing is wrong. We own it, we confess it, and we repent of that. We don't rededicate. We don't double down and say, I'm going to try harder next time. That's not in the Bible. We repent of that. And then he says, return. He says, do the works you did at first. Well, you've got to have three R's if you've got two, right? Remember, repent, and return. In other words, go back and do the things you did at first. Do those things. And then you'll be right where you need to be. You know, when people come to me and they say they want to rededicate, if I have the chance to talk to them, and if they come down the aisle and say it, I would say, I want to talk to you later. But if I have a chance to talk to someone, hey, I'm not where I should be, but I want to get there, I don't say, you need to try harder, or I'm glad you're resolving to do better. No. Go back to where you got off track, okay? And I believe with all my heart, the Holy Spirit will show you, okay? If you're not where you need to be, then you let God show you, when did I get off the road and into the ditch? Where was it that I got stuck? Go back to that and say, Lord, I want to get that right. Whatever it is I need to repent of, whatever it is I need to confess, if I need to go to somebody, if I need to do something, whatever it is, I want to get that right. And then I get back on the road and I keep on trucking. And that is what he's saying. Repent of the sin, return to the things you did at first, and then he says the light on that lampstand is going to shine. You might have another revival in the church, and you might have another riot in the community. Woo! Oh, boy. My challenge to you tonight is, will you remember what you used to do when you got saved? Will you repent of anything that you're doing now that's hindering God working in your life? And will you return to your first love and do the things you did at first? Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this time in your word. 
I pray that you would just challenge us and encourage us, Lord, to be the people that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact a pastor, please visit phbcsomerset.com.